0: After Martin Luther refused to recant at the Diet of Worms,
1: Frederick the Weiss hid him at the Wartburg Castle for 10 months. One of the first things Luther worked on was his commentary on the Magnificat. The urgency to finish was because the commentary served at least two purposes. First, it fulfilled Luther's promise to the young Prince John Frederick, a Luther supporter who would eventually become one of the most important men in Europe. More importantly, the commentary gave
0: Luther a chance to work through his new status as a man with internationally recognized wisdom and power. Luther's work to come to terms with his new influence is especially helpful for us in this modern world as we consider the great gifts God has given
1: to us. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Gagley. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. So we're going to
0: invite you into one of our favorite writings of Martin Luther, and that is his commentary on the Magnificat. We're going to treat it a little bit different than Luther's other writings, partly because we've already covered the background and some detail of this in episode 25. And so the time period of 1521, the context in which it was written, we're going to just encourage you to go back, listen to episode 25, when we focus on how Luther was using the Magnificat to help untangle a lot of issues. He was questioning whether he was right to start the Reformation, uh, how he experiences the things that happened to him, how he fights back, how he uses his words. So we're going to be following a format um, that... uh, on the Magnificat that is going to be published soon.
1: Yes, yes, this comes from my. Uh, it's a Bible study that I'm putting out through Sola Publishing. Um, should be coming out shortly after the New Year uh, on on the Magnificat. The, as as I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I I have been fascinated by the Magn by Luther's commentary on the Magnificat, mostly because of what we said in the opening that. I think that this is, uh, you know, we have been blessed with great wisdom, power, and wealth, especially here in the United States. And the right usage of that is, I think, something we need to be thinking about. So commentary, just quickly,
0: between 1519-1521, Luther was asked by the 17-year-old Prince John Frederick, who's third in line for the position to be the elector of Saxony, to write something that encourages him to be a leader. And uh, so in the beginning of the Magnificat, Luther includes a letter to John Frederick, starts, serene and highborn Prince, gracious Lord, may your grace accept my humble prayer and service. Your grace's kind letter has lately come into my hands, and its cheering contents brought me much joy. By way of reply, I send you this little exposition of the Magnificat. So that
1: explains kind of why he's writing it. So uh, the guys that Luther is writing to, John Frederick, and then also he knew that it was going to be published and sent out for anybody in positions of power to read. In fact, he was frustrated when
0: he sent it to the publisher and it wasn't published right away. He even wrote to the publisher and said, why
1: hasn't it appeared in print yet? Yeah, he was very, very anxious to get this one out. And and that, a lot of that was because it answered that question that we talked about a moment ago. You know, why did why was the Reformation so important? How did he get the rights to do this? His view on it, although he doesn't address that directly, He maps out his thinking on what it would take to do that kind of thing, and he's hoping that they can put together the dots. And he looks at Mary's Magnificat as a song that
0: warns of temptations that we face when we are well-educated, powerful, and wealthy. There are temptations that exist when you have the wisdom, you have the power, you have the strength to do something. And how do you handle those temptations? Luther sees the Magnificat as a wonderful pathway towards righteous action in the
1: midst of a a struggling world. So one of the things that Luther does at the very beginning of his discussion on the Magnificat is he has this, it's almost like a broadside statement where he says, God is a Lord whose work consists but in this, to break whatever is whole and to make whole whatever is broken.
0: He's a disruptor. God is. He takes the things that we may be comfortable with. He takes the things that we may be at ease and leisure with, uh, that we have stopped questioning, stopped challenging. And God breaks those up and then says, now look at me. And
1: one of the things that, especially since you think about who this is being written to, this is being written to not just you know, Prince John Frederick, this 19-year-old kid who's going to become very powerful. Because he was
0: 17-year-old when he requested it. By the time <laughs> it finally gets published, he's 19. He's 19. It
1: took a while. It took a couple of years. A little busy during that time. But on top of that, he also knows he's speaking to many of the most powerful people in Europe. And he's saying, be ready. You are going to be broken. You know, God will break you. And In the midst of this disruption
0: that is the Reformation, Luther is not just trying to be schismatic. In fact, that is a great effort of Lutherans throughout the 1520s, uh, culminating in the publication of the Augsburg Confession, uh, where they say, we are not schismatic. In fact, we are finding unity with the one holy Catholic apostolic church. We have to break down that which is unholy. To make whole again
1: that which God is bringing into the world. And and one of the things that Luther is playing out, will play out through this discussion, is to be broken by God. And Luther's view is a good thing. Yeah. He's not saying this as a threat to these people. He's saying because God loves them so dearly, he's not going to leave them in their pridefulness. The pridefulness of I'm everything, I'm all
0: that, you you just look at me and you get everything you need, that is not a godly thing. And so the idea that we're not all that is a theme that Luther's going to return to over and over again in his writing and preaching. For example, his last words that were recorded, we are all beggars, highlighting we don't have anything to offer God. Our only hope for
1: salvation is in Christ one of the things that's really great about the magnificat is and it's for most of luther's writings in the early days is he had to back up everything he said with scripture and so because this was one of his very early writings there are uh, there's a plethora of scriptural references backing up what he's saying and so you have when you go through luther's commentary on the magnificat you see, it's not just Luther talking. This is God's God's word, and just being translated or being put into context for the specific situation by Luther. I think some of that happens because his later writings
0: are more reactive. He's trying to get ahead of controversies. Um, his earlier writings are foundational. He's establishing this is who uh, God is. This is how I have found him in the scriptures, and this is how you will find him as well. So. If you read Luther's writings from 1517 up through 1521, this time period, uh, after 1521, and he returns back to Wittenberg, and uh, life becomes a little bit more... I, I don't know if he's just right there in the midst of the city of Wittenberg. He's expected to be this leader of the Reformation. Now his writings change, but that time period, fifteen seventeen to fifteen twenty one, everything's very foundational. He defines his terms, he defines his arguments, he supports with scripture. It is um, at, at, at some moments it feels a little uh, pro, um, it just slow. Yeah. Because you're like, all right, three pages ago, I got your point, Luther. Why do we need more scriptures? But on the other hand, by the end of it, you're like, how can I help but think this? This is everything God is saying. If he would have just said it in a phrase, you're like, oh, that's Luther. That's just his opinion. But as he backs it up more and more with scripture, you go... If I'm going to be someone
1: that trusts God's word, then I have to. I have to think this too, this same way. One other thing that's really great about this, and maybe it's because he's writing to a 17 to 19 year old, he's got this young kid in mind as he's going through this. Is he spends a lot of time defining specific concepts, uh, and and we'll be go, we'll be hitting on this as we go through this, but. You know, the, the, it's great because it's, you know, this is all before Webster's Dictionary existed. Yeah. So, so exactly what somebody meant when they said something like wisdom, like what, what somebody meant when they said something like wealth, when somebody, what somebody meant when they said something like humility. Yeah. These are concepts that he goes and he takes the time to clearly define what he means. And it's different than our current understanding. So he starts with the terms that are going to come up just right at the beginning of the Magnificat.
0: My soul magnifies the Lord. So he's going to spend some time describing the difference between body, soul, and spirit. As usual, he's going to begin by showing that scripture looks at spirit and soul as two different things by referencing scripture, specifically the book of Hebrews. He then talks about the function of the spirit and the soul.
1: So the the spirit in Luther's way of thing, and actually it's a biblical way of looking at the spirit the spirit and i want, i'm looking for the, the the spirit is the the i'm going to i'm paraphrasing cuz can't find it in my notes here but it's it's the the, the 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 house of of faith it is where our faith resides that dwelling place of faith
0: that where um, if your your spirit is strong that means that god is dwelling with you When your spirit is weak, it means you have set your house on sand. So to think of uh, that parable of a wise man who builds his house on the rock, if your spirit is in God's wisdom, then it's on a rock. If your spirit is on your own, then you're on sand. Then he says the soul is similar, but the soul is largely what is activating and motivating and then the works that you do. The the spirit is what is kind of your foundation, then the soul are the things that you do, the things that animate you, that
1: make you you in the world, uh, particularly as you are working with God. So some examples of things that in Luther's time or the Bible thinks of when it's talking about the soul are things like wit, things like uh, intellect, things like you know, the, the rationality. The, these are things that reside in the soul. This, These are things... Those. That, those are the things you do with your soul. Right, right. As you dwell in the spirit,
0: your soul acts with wit. Your, your soul acts with wisdom. Your soul is doing all of those things. And then he's going to contrast just for a little bit. And he says that... Um, you've got body, soul, and spirit. And then he says, there's, there's the flesh and the spirit and the flesh and the spirit is kind of a different structure where the flesh are the things of, of, of sinfulness and the spirit are the things of God. And so he says, sometimes you'll see body, soul, spirit. Sometimes you'll see flesh and spirit. And, and so he, if you've ever just read the scriptures, you're like, what does it mean to have a soul? What does it mean to have the spirit of God? What does it mean to be a body? And how is that different than flesh? That's what he deals with. He's beginning with a definition of his terms. And as he's looking at how soul and spirit work together, he wants us to learn how to keep things in proper perspective. We won't become overly attached to them uh, because we'll always remember that our true treasure is in Christ. My soul isn't everything
1: until it's in Christ. So one of the problems we have, according to Luther, is that if the soul, so because the soul is rational, the soul is the one that uh, actually tries to figure things out. And because the spirit is the dwelling place of faith, those things that cannot be figured out rationally, things like God, mm-hmm. you know, where you have to just rely on God's word. This is what God says he is. You're going to have to rely on that. We can't, our mind can't. It's abstract. It's abstract but if your spirit is strong you know how to hold on to it right and that's that's the correct way of doing things but if your spirit is weak then the soul will come in and try to figure things out with rationality your soul's going to
0: always look for an answer and if the answer is not found in your spirit you're going to look for it in the world you're going to try to solve everything with money or power or intellectual reasoning and it's it, this the soul Without the backing of the spirit, is always in the immediacy of the now, uh, reacting to and the hurts, the the joys. Everything is um, immediate. Uh, the spirit has this long dwelling. The spirit is the thing that gives us the patience to see God at work. If there is a weakness of your spirit, um, then the immediacy of the now becomes
1: the controller of your soul. And you just you'll you'll go bouncing from one idea to another to another. And chasing things that are like Christ says, you'll be building on, sh- on, on shifting sands. There, there is the only way to build on the rock of Christ is with your spirit, with faith.
0: And as he looks at that spirit that trusts in God, he's going to build on that notion of the backing of God gives you the ability to make it through life, uh, whether you're caressed, whether you're a thing of beauty or whether things are hard in life, if you have that long-suffering spirit, um, then your soul can handle the moments of
1: the now that might be difficult. Right after that, Luther has this... He has a lot of little sidebars in his commentary, um, but one of them that that was really valuable, uh, I thought, was the commentary, his discussion on humility. Mm -hmm. Because humility and Luther's Luther's discussion is far different than our understanding of humility.
0: Yeah, so our, our I thinking of humility, Mike is probably what I have inside of me. I'm I'm a humble person. Describing kind of an attribute of myself, a characteristic, he's humble. But Luther doesn't look it at it as a characteristic of a
1: person, but rather an activity. That occurs to a person. So this is one of the things that is critical for Lutheran theology. And Evan and I were talking about it beforehand, and we could go off for an hour, I think, on this. But let's just (laughs) stay on task. The, the 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 critical thing the critical thing to understand about this is that we can our hearts want to be proud. Mm-hmm. And, and so the humility that we have is something that is forced upon us by our circumstances. We may find ourselves sick. We may find ourselves somehow in, poverty. in poverty.
0: As all of these different moments and experiences happen to us, God is humbling us. And in the moment, not so fun. But what we learn to do is not trust in the concrete uh, things that can become illusionary in this world. We learn to trust in the steadfast confidence that God is with us. So Luther's going to highlight the paradox of humility. If you're successful at managing yourself in faith and grace, being joyful in Christ, even in the face of being poor, sick, hungry, thirsty, in prison, suffering, or dying, you're liable to be recognized as an exceptional person. And how does that happen that you become exceptional? This is where Luther is going to introduce the idea of, quote, truly humble. These are the people who remain focused on Christ and his work, giving thanks for the little things, even in their suffering. So if you're poor, sick, hungry, thirsty, in prison, suffering or dying, and you still are faithful, how does that happen? Because you've learned not to trust in the things that your eyes see, you've learned to trust in Christ.
1: So let's run through an example. Let's say somebody who's very sick, and they get an opportunity to go outside and enjoy the sun, and they're very thankful for it. Um, First, that person has been humbled by their illness, and now they're thankful in their humility. So, So a critical part of humility, in Luther's view, is that ability to be thankful for the little things that suddenly are very important to us.
0: And this gets contrasted with being angry and, and feeling a sense of pride and vengeance that something has been taken away and I've got to go get it back. He, he talks to this young prince about when, when something happens to you that humbles you, you do not need to react with an anger and a vengeance to go against the world. Rather, you learn to receive what has happened to
1: you and trust that God is at work in it. So, after he lays that basic groundwork, and there's a lot more to say about humility, but we're going to have to move on. He then um, starts to go kind of verse by verse, doesn't he? Yes, yes. And starting with, my soul magnifies the Lord, the opening verse of the Magnificat. So, Luther uses this verse to really highlight Mary's character. and. Let's talk about that um, in context for a moment and sort of consider what's happening in Mary's life. So she's given this good news, bad news announcement. You know, The good news is that she's gonna be the mother of the Messiah. But the bad news is that she, she's she been told that she's gonna be pregnant outside of marriage. And she's wise enough to understand the implications
0: of this bad news. The good news might be a little hard to wrap her minds around, but there's a concreteness in this bad news. And this kind of fits with that abstract and concrete. And how do we learn to have confidence in the abstract that she's going to be the mother of God while the very concrete thing is ahead of her? And this illustrates how when she says, my soul magnifies, it's not magnifying the gift that she's
1: been given. She magnifies the Lord. So she's, this, yeah, this is, this is really, and I think for, if you compare the story of Mary getting this news Um, In Luke chapter one with the story immediately before it, where Zachariah gets some good news. You know, there's like this, the Zachariah doesn't believe he doesn't have faith in what, and so he's struck dumb. He can't speak for a period of time to, but Mary, she does believe. And if this was a moment for boasting, I mean, this
0: could be it. I mean, this is her, uh, get the PR machine going. She's going to be the mother of God. Uh, get everybody to know. Yeah, let's get the story out there, you know.
1: But no, she doesn't do that. You know, what she says is really she doesn't even think of herself. Instead, she praises the goodness of God. And and here's the thing that Luther says we can learn uh, about all this. Uh, so, you know, Mary is is given this great gift, probably the greatest gift. It is easily the greatest gift that anybody is going to get. But she doesn't focus on the gift or the implications of the gift. No, she focused on the goodness of God. So what Luther is trying to do is he's trying to get the prince right out of the gate to not focus on all these great things he's been given. Don't look
0: at just the concrete things your eyes can see in this world, but have in your spirit the confidence that the Lord is the one to look at. There's a lot more we could say about this, but we're going to move on to the next line. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Now, you can see already why Luther spent time defining the terms soul and spirit, because that's the first couple things inside the Magnificat.
1: Right. And so Luther talks about now the thing is, is he says, you know, you have to sort of put the two together. Uh, putting verses 46 and 47 together. He says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And then the verse 47 is, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And what he's doing there is, you know, we think of that as being, at least I know historically when I've read my, my own personal history, reading through that, I thought it was redundant. Yeah, Yeah, but it's not. These are two different things. They are two
0: different things. So my soul glorifies the Lord, has this confidence that before she's ever going to talk about God as her Savior, as a launching point, she's going to trust that God, who is the creator and the maker of all things, is the one to look to. Regardless of whether he has saved you or not, learn how to glorify the Lord. And as you glorify the Lord, as you see that first article gift that God is the one that has made me and all things, then you can learn to rejoice that not only is he all of that, he now is the one that becomes my Savior. So one of the
1: things that, again, we have the... God our Lord, God our savior. God our Lord is who God is, God our savior is what God has done for us. One of the great things God has done for us. And you don't have faith just in God because of what he's done for you. Right, that's that'd be like being let's say you you had a little business, right? You you were you were working in your, and your father had a business and he's going to teach you and you hate your father but you like like the business, right? And so so what you do is you you take everything the father has to give you, but you know you can't wait for him to get out of the way so you can take over the business.
0: This is similar to how people say, "Well, I like the red letter uh, Jesus. I don't really like the Old Testament. I like all the things that God does in the New Testament, but I don't really like God in the Old Testament." No, He's the Lord. Learn how to trust in Him as Lord. And as you do those first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty Maker of Heaven and Earth. You learn to have faith in that. Then there's there's room and discovery to find him as a savior even when that
1: saving isn't so obvious. Now this is one of those areas that is very difficult for us. I mean so few people even believe they've been saved that, you know, you have to first understand your your salvation and hopefully over time you'll learn to love God, the God that gave it to you. There's this this process we have to go through. But the fact is it, we have to go through it. We otherwise you know, as these gifts, like, like uh, Job always says, you know, naked I came into the world, naked I shall leave. You know, all these great gifts we've got are all going to be taken away from us and all we'll have left is God. Now, Luther has a hyperbole in, he's talking about Christ's upper room discourse.
0: He's talking about the, the giver of all good gifts, giving his own body and blood. And he, Luther calls our tendency to love God's gifts more than we love God himself as a whore's love. Um, <laughs> yeah. so,
1: you're not going to hear that very often on religious b- b- no, podcasts. No, <laughs> but it,
0: it's the reality of, of loving everything God gives you without loving God is it, just loving him as a whore loves the
1: payment that she gets. Yes, and that, so that is something Luther brings up. and. You know, it makes us uncomfortable, but it's it's spot on. It is exactly the way it is. If we are guilty of loving God's gifts more than we love
0: God, we are only seeing God in a transactional way. And if he gives you something, then you're happy about it. If you take something away, then you hate him. And Luther is trying to develop in John Frederick and all of us a faith that loves God, even when it looks like he's taking something away from you.
1: The next verse, and again, each one of these is... Worthy. Oh, five pages? Each one is like five pages, and, right? Right, and, and each one is worthy of a lot of discussion. But we're going to keep moving. The next verse is, For he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. And and Luther really focuses in on that word regard. He really spends some time talking about that. And, and so what Luther says is that uh, according to Luther, all God's gifts can be broken up into two groups. There are the earthly group, earthly gifts like wisdom, power, wealth. And then there are the gifts of God himself, which are his grace and what he says is his regard. His And in the Old Testament, we use the, the Old Testament word, God remembered the Israelites. That's another term that God looks to them in grace and faith and hope. I should say in grace. He looks to them, looks looks to the situation in grace where he, he turns his attention. It's not that he just regards like like you might regard as you're going through the, the grocery store you regard the, the, the oranges there. No this is this is God turning his face in, in grace toward us. So that's that's and so we have these gifts of where he's willing to give himself in this situation. And so wealth, power, wisdom,
0: Each one of these gifts are are worldly gifts, and if you use them just in a worldly way, then they can turn into a prideful thing. And uh, we'll look later at how that kind of explodes if you allow pride to become the thing that fuels your, your wealth and your power and your wisdom. The second half of the verse, For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. There, there is just a moment here. He'll occasionally tell John Frederick how it's hard to translate some of these words because they're just not words we use. He says, "Henceforth, all generations." He spends some time explaining why he translates from children's children to children. Um, he says, "All generations." What does that mean? And he's emphasizing in his definition of that word, generations, the responsibility of one. Family generation to the next family's generation to teach the faith and how from, Behold henceforth all generations. How does that happen as a young man? How did you learn about Jesus as a young man who's going to have children? How are you going to teach your children about Jesus it happens because from one generation to the next you learn to call
1: God blessed. now I know another part of this <clears throat> is at least for myself Whenever I've read that line, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. I always took it like, wow, Mary's saying she's going to be a rock star forever. You know, that was, it was like boasting. And it's like, oh, well, whatever, Mary. You know, <laughs> so, it's that,
0: that double notion of uh, she speaks about humility, but then she celebrates how everyone's going to remember her.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and uh, so it took me a little while to, to wrap my hand and my head around that. But the fact is again, if you go to the context, you know Mary is not project is not projecting anything about herself it's all about who she's giving birth to right that her her deal here is that listen, I'm just going to be the mom I'm going to be a mom like all other moms, but this person this the this messiah that i'm going to this son I'm going to have is going to save the world yeah. and this she's isn't blessed above. because of who she's giving birth to, not because
0: of anything that's in and of herself. And so Luther is going to close this verse by talking about,
1: uh, we are blessed not because of what we are, but because of what we receive. And what Luther also goes into is, you know, you have to also look at her situation. She was, he spends a lot of time talking about, here she was amongst the lowliest in all of Israel or all of, you know, all of Judah. And she's... Elevated by God, all that. And so what what Luther talks about is the power of God being shown forth through Mary, the work he's doing through Mary and how this is. And Mary's saying that, wow, look
0: at what God did. Here's what Luther says about this idea of low estate. Thus, the word low estate shows us plainly that the Virgin Mary was a poor, despised and lowly maiden who served God in her low estate nor knew it was so highly esteemed by him. This should comfort us and teach us that though we should willingly be humbled and despised, we ought not to despair as though God were angry at us. Rather, we should set our hope on his grace, concerned only, lest we be not cheerful and contented enough in our low estate, lest our evil eye be opened too wide and deceive us by secretly lusting after lofty things and satisfaction with self, which is the death of humility. So Luther's saying... uh, the pride is never going to be in us. The pride always has to be that God is at work. Right. Right. We're, we're at a good spot for a beer break. We're about 30 minutes into this episode. We have a, a beer called Ripped Right by One Well Brewing in Kalamazoo. Um it says high fives over handshakes. It's a New England IPA. It's hazy, made with citra and mosaic hops, uh, double hopped in its fermentation process. Its aroma is strong. Uh, it, I describe it as maybe a, uh, uh, a fermented pear juice is almost what I think of it as. It's It's got a citrus flavor to it. Um, it's got a smoothness to it. It doesn't have a bitter bite to it, but it's got a
1: little bit of the acid uh, of an IPA, and and it just is so sp- that that acidic, and this is something we talked about before we started recording, before I, we started doing this podcast. I always stayed away from the the orange, pineapple, whatever f- type beers. Still, stay away from the blueberries. <laughs> I still, stay you right, Although Maria likes that one, but when it comes to these these high highly acidic uh, beers, it just cuts and it it makes it so smooth Mm -hmm. this is i I, you know i I was talking to the guy i bought this from and he said everybody uh, loves this stuff Uh, and it is it is an excellent beer so one well brewing a small craft brewery in kalamazoo Um,
0: you can find them in cans in the grocery stores in michigan and ripped right has kind of a uh, if you're looking for it, it has a lazy boy, like uh, a
1: green lazy boy with a face on it. That looks like
0: something I'd sit in as I drink this beer. <laughs> so
1: here's our beer break. Thank you, One Well Brewing. Okay. So everything we've covered so far is sort of like a preamble to the main part of the Magnificat. And actually, this is the part that Luther encourages Prince John Fred- Frederick to come back to. Uh, near the end of the Magnificat, he says, hey, yeah, all that stuff at the beginning, you got that. Don't worry. Although I think I got a lot out of the whole thing. But he says, make sure you go back from this point on, the, this where, where it all comes together. So um, the Luther, Luther has uh, different definitions for wisdom, power, and wealth. He goes through each one of them. And he starts building his discussions on them. But I think it's important to start with the definitions, Luther's definitions of each one of these. So let's start with Luther's definition of the gift of wisdom. So his definition of wisdom is anything
0: that helps us build our reputation for being capable, intelligent, or virtuous.
1: So Luther's examples are intellect, reason, wit, knowledge, piety, or virtuousness. The second bucket is the gift of power.
0: Luther defines this power as our influence and authority, whether formal or
1: or informal. So Luther's examples there are all authority, nobility, friends, high station, and honor. So everything from a father to a president fit this definition, but so does a high schooler who has a lot of friends. Yeah. If you have the power, whether it's a formal office that you hold or it's the informal
0: gathering of friends that you have— this power that you have gives you a, a responsibility. The third bucket is the gift of riches. Luther says that this is every external good that may fall the body. So riches here are not just
1: uh, money, but the, the tools that you have. So his examples are good health. This one surprised me. Beauty is considered riches. Strength is considered riches in, in Luther's mind. Um, and so since it includes wealth, attractiveness, and health, it even includes the, in, the institutions that, that, give, that keep us healthy or strong uh, or safe or secure, like hospitals. Police. So a community that
0: has uh, good health care, good police, uh, a good university is a place that's rich because it has everything that would help to support that community, uh, have
1: the good things that would befall a body. So, in the Magnificat, Mary focuses exclusively on those things that are the selfish uses of wisdom, power, and wealth. So, Luther wants to open up the discussion a little bit. So, he goes back to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And that's where Jeremiah creates sort of like a continuum of wisdom, power, and wealth But he also says he sets something as an opposite for each one of those. So if we become proud in our wisdom, we will become
0: unmerciful. If we become proud in our power, we will become unjust. If we become proud in our wealth, we will lack righteousness. So there's this explosion of danger that can happen if pride becomes the mover and shaker of how we use our wisdom power, or wealth.
1: And it's, it really took, a, at least for myself, it took a little bit of time understanding that the opposite of wisdom is unmerciful is to be unmerciful. It's not to be foolish. It's not to be foolish. The opposite of wisdom is when the opposite of the right use of wisdom is to be unmerciful. And we see that a lot in our political discourse, for example, where I'm right, you're wrong, go to hell. You know, it's It's this sort of... You know, we're, creating an object of a person rather than someone I should care about. Right, right. And so, so that uh, uh, going to go through that one more time. Uh, if we become proud in our wisdom, we will become unmerciful. If we become proud in our power, we will we will become unjust. And if we become proud in our wealth, we will lack righteousness. So we're going to go through each one of those and talk a little bit about Luther it. Luther
0: starts out by addressing Mary's words. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Using Job, Psalm 10, Psalm 58. Again, remember, he's going to use lots of scripture to make his point. He's going to talk
1: about how there are people who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So according to Luther, scripture likes to call these people the wicked. And the wicked are those who are proud and unmerciful in their intellectual capabilities. Uh, They can be very influential, very persuasive. So this is kind of Uh,
0: an interesting definition of the wicked because this isn't someone that is uh, grossly obvious in our world that they're doing wicked things. But over time, you start to see how they use their, their abilities to turn people away from
1: God and instead turn them to see themselves. Probably in our modern world, the most obvious version, but certainly not the only version, would be a cult leader. So a cult leader is somebody who is very influential, very persuasive. They seem to have a lot of, you know, a lot of positive attributes and they guide people away from God. And and instead, glory to
0: the cult or glory to themselves. A a political leader could fall into this if they no longer are Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but instead are uh,
1: the entrenchment of, of bureaucracy that says, look at us. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that's that's the um, uh, the, so the opposite are those who use their intellect, reason, wit, knowledge, piety, or virtuousness to bring glory to God. So, how can you tell the difference? So, if somebody is angry and unmerciful when they're opposed, they are most likely bringing glory to themselves. You know, Mike, that is a wonderful
0: point to bring up when you are having conflict with someone else and their reaction is disproportionate to what you expect. You start to realize you have attacked, at least this is their perception, you have not attacked their point or the position they're taking. They feel attacked as a person. So they come out and defend themselves rather than stay objective and just discuss the point. Um, when I have had conversations with people, and I think it's just a conversation, and suddenly it flips, and becomes angry, and it becomes filled with this demeanor of conflict that I did not expect, I
1: realize unknowingly that person thinks I have attacked them. Right, and you really have to work hard with those people to keep it in. This is what we're just talking about. This thing. This has nothing to do with you. This has, and. If they're not able to do that, then they are unmerciful and they're proud. Angry and, and unmerciful because they feel they have been attacked themselves. Right, right. So if I'm wrong, and my then the first thing is, is that there's a recognition that the truth lies outside of ourselves. in wisdom and godly wisdom, there is a tr- the understanding that the truth lies lies outside of ourselves. It lies with God. And so if somebody is bringing glory to God, they will be far
0: more merciful when they are attacked or if they think the attack is against them, they're fine with that because as long as they have the ability to speak about what God is doing,
1: go ahead and attack me as much as you want. Right. Or maybe, maybe this is something like, like, uh, David with Absalom where it's like, Hey, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can, you know, God is is working through you to clear things up for me. So if I'm right, my opponent is fighting with God, and he's got way big problems
0: than just our disagreement. Let him deal with God. The vengeance is God's. If I'm wrong, my opponent might be helping me to understand the truth. Either way, I don't need to get angry. I don't need to get bitter because they have either got to deal with God, which is their own problem. It's a big problem or I've got to learn to bring some correction to my life,
1: and I'm really thankful they did it. Right. So after Luther discusses uh, the scattering of those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, he he backs up to the first part of verse 51, considering what Mary means when she says, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. So according to Luther, the arm of God means in Scripture, God's own power by which he works without any medium or creature. So this is something where uh, uh, let's just sort of try and work our way through this. Usually, God works through creation. When 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 something when when something happens, uh, uh, it's usually mediated right. through the work of someone else. So if I'm sick, God's going to
0: take care of me through the work of a doctor. If I'm in danger, God is going to protect me through the work of police and fire departments to keep us fed. God sends water and sunlight. Farmers work the ground. Bakers bake the bread. But there are times when God works with his own arm, when he takes on the fight himself, when it's not going to be done through another, but he
1: uses his own self to bring about my care, my protection. So when, according to Luther, when God goes to fight against the wicked, he does that himself. And that is, so again, this takes our responsibilities out of the mix. So the arm of God is... Christ on the cross. Yes, bringing destruction to the wicked through his own sacrifice. Right. Right. And that is the best example. Now, Luther would I think would say that God does it in other places, but that is the very best example of God taking on a fight by himself.
0: But just like the cross, everybody will look at what's happening. And assume the wicked are winning. When God uses his own arm to bring a destruction uh, to the wicked, the world will not always see it as such. They'll think just as Christ was dying on the cross, this poor man, look at this. He thought he could lead the people um, to revolution against the Romans and now he's dying on a
1: cross. Uh, People will misunderstand how God is at work in the world. So Luther goes through a lot of different biblical examples of this, but the one that, uh, uh, Psalm 37 is one that might be worthwhile looking at. Um, And they're just going to take a little bit out of that. he says, uh, in verse 35, the Psalm 37 says, I have seen the wicked oppressing and towering like a cedar of Lebanon. And then 36 says, and again, I passed by and they were no more. So what Luther is saying is that in Scripture, if you go back through Scripture, these people will be powerful and dangerous, and then God will just, they're just gone. And this is what happens to the
0: Assyrians. It's what happens to the Babylonians. It happens to the Persians. It happens to the Greeks. It happens to the Romans. God is continually at work in history, bringing a destruction to the wicked in a way that will be beyond our imagination. So
1: Luther has a quote. He goes, Uh, the, The poor dupes do not even know that even while they are puffing themselves up and growing strong, they are forsaken of God and God's arm is not with them.
0: There's a lot more that could be talked about here, but we're going to move on in the next part of the Magnificat. Mary moves past the prideful use of wisdom, and begins talking about the prideful use of power. Luke chapter 1 verse 52, Mary sings,
1: he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. So let's go back to Luther's expanded definition of power. God includes all authority, nobility, friends, high station and honor, whether pertaining to temporal or to spiritual goods or persons, together with all the rights, liberties and privileges pertaining to the same. Sounds like a lawyer wrote that, doesn't it? Well, I guess he's a theologian, so the next best thing.
0: But he makes it clear that society needs some people to be more powerful than others, uh, just to allow things to function. Luther is not a communist. Uh, Luther is not a um, Uh, a Unitarian, he's not an egalitarian. Uh, Luther has a place for power in this world. The key is not to become prideful in the power that God has given to us. And again, consider the context. He's writing this Commentary in the
1: Magnificat to a noble who is going to be the Elector of Saxony. So one of the points Luther spends some time developing as he's going through this is to try to encourage the, the, the prince to be patient if he finds himself to be the target of unjust treatment at the hands of others who are powerful.
0: He says he does not destroy the mighty as suddenly as they deserve, but lets them go for a season
1: until their might be reached. Their might has reached its highest point. So basically, it's that God will eventually act if they are being prideful in their power. But then he says, uh, when their might has done this, God does not support it, neither can it support itself. It breaks down of its own weight without any crash or sound. And the oppressed are raised up also without any sound, for God's strength is in them. And it alone remains when the strength of the mighty has fallen. This is a patient um, revolution. It's not
0: that Luther says, you know, unlike, say, Thomas Munzer and the revolution of the peasants that's going to come up four or five years after this. Luther is saying that the, the prideful will always fall apart and God will always find a spot for the humble to rise up and have their victory.
1: So Luther takes some time to say, "Okay, well, let's take a step back here. This doesn't mean that God will destroy the positions of power. This is what we were saying earlier. It's not like this is a communist position. This is this is There's L- not a flattening of things. There's always going to be power. Right. And but the, all Luther is saying is that God will remove the the prideful in their positions of power and replace them Maybe not with the perfect person, but with somebody who's less prideful. And that's, there, don't, don't be looking for perfection out of all this. God has his reasons for doing what he does. And then he looks at Luther's, uh, Luther looks at Mary's promise
0: that the lowly will be exalted. And according to Luther... This doesn't mean that the lowly will take positions of power. It's not that the the working man is going to overthrow the foreman and uh, suddenly the lowly are going to be in those positions, but it's a promise to be exalted spiritually. According to Luther, this means that the lowly will become, now here's the quote, judges over seats and power and all might, both here and in heaven, for they have more knowledge than all the learned and mighty. All this is said for the comfort of the suffering and for the terror of the tyrants if we had but enough faith to believe it is true. There is this notion that Luther is raising that the tyrant in the end, in heaven, will see the one he has abused
1: as his judge over his deeds. So according to Luther, the powerful better be worried if they are tempted to misuse their power, again, like Evan just said, because they are going to be judged by those that they are abusing. So after finishing up with the powerful, Luther turns his attention to the rich. So this is that movement between wisdom,
0: power, and then rich. It's, it's an example of how Luther is a wonderful writer using rhetoric to build an argument. He defines the terms, he then uses those terms, and then he builds a, a structure, and then he fills in that structure. It is easy to read Luther. Don't become intimidated uh, just because... Um, some of the words might be bigger or uh, the sentences might be a little challenging for you to read. Be patient. Luther is very clear
1: in his use of terms. In the Bible study that we're putting out um, next year, or this, I guess this year. In 2023. In uh, In that Bible study, uh, we are making available the actual text from Luther on a website. And so you'll be able to download that text. You'll be able to read Luther's commentary on the Magnificat for yourself and understand exactly. This is just the the Bible study is just to help guide you through that with a little bit of help. But the idea is, like Evan said, you should be able to read that and understand it. Luther is pretty clear. After finishing up with the powerful, as we said, Luther moves on to
0: the rich. He starts out by reiterating that there's nothing wrong with being wise
1: or powerful or rich. So Luther then points out that the rich of those three, the rich are the least dangerous
0: of any of them. Because the wise will lead people away from God by lies, the powerful will try to
1: force people away from God, but the rich, they only hurt themselves. So they rely on their wealth to solve their problems and they become comfortable in just relying on their wealth and they don't rely on God. Where wisdom can destroy mercy, Power can destroy a love of justice. Wealth will destroy our ability to
0: attain the righteousness that is ours in Christ. We will no longer trust in the riches of Christ. We'll
1: start to trust in our own righteousness, our own riches. Right, right. So then, Luther spends some time bemoaning the fact that nobody pays any attention to all the warnings in the Bible regarding our tendency to become proud in our wisdom and our power and our wealth. And he has this quote. He says, "A man is frightened when he hears that his father has disowned him, or that he has fallen into into disfavor with his lord, his leader. Uh, yet we rich men and of high yet we rich men and of high degree are not frightened when we hear that God disowns us." nay, not only disowns us, but threatens to break, humble, and send us empty away. And of course, Luther's right. You know, here we are, we have these threats from God that when we become prideful in our wisdom, prideful in our wealth, prideful in our, in our power, God is saying he's going he's gonna to come after us and we don't care.
0: You know, And the, all these threats that God has against the wise, the powerful and rich that fill up scripture... They should be comforting to the people who suffer at the hands of these folks. As Luther says, how could one be more strongly and comfortably moved to willing
1: endurance of hunger and poverty? So, so hard times are going to be coming. to to any Christian, but we are called to remember that God will handle these things for us. That's the patience that is possible when our spirit rests in Christ. We know
0: the eternity is in Christ, so our soul can be animated with doing righteous deeds, uh, knowing that the world can do its worst to us and our spirit is secure in what Christ gives to
1: us. So Luther wraps everything up with a discussion on God's mercy, and he starts out by stating that we can easily understand who are God's servants and who are not. So, he starts out with the folks who are not God's servants. So, who are not
0: God's servants? The presumptuously wise, the presumptuously powerful, and the presumptuously rich. These folks have made idols of the gifts that God has given to them so that they use their gifts to judge others. So, who are God's servants? Everyone who has benefited
1: from the work of Christ. So, Luther doesn't say it explicitly, but he's giving us a way out of our presumptuousness. If we find we are becoming prideful in our wisdom and our power and our wealth, we need to turn to Christ so we remember what he has done for us. Hopefully, that means when when we really consider what Christ consider Christ and his work, we'll find, finally, uh, see how foolish our our wisdom really is or how weak our power is or how useless our wealth is. And that's that's where you finally will, will rely on the one who can actually fix things for us. I think that does it. Do you have anything more? No, I, I just look at the uh, epilogue that Luther attaches to the
0: Magnificat. So the, there's a prologue and epilogue. Those are words that are specifically kind of directed personally to John Frederick. And then there's the commentary in the epilogue. He says, therefore, my gracious Lord and Prince, I commend the, magnific- the Magnificat to your grace, particularly the fifth and sixth verses in which its chief content is gathered up. I beseech and exhort to your grace in all of your life to fear nothing on earth, not even hell itself, so much as that which the mother of God there calls the imagination of their hearts. It's the greatest, closest, mightiest, and most destructive foe of all mankind, and especially of rulers. Its name is reason. Good sense, or opinion. From it, all counsels and all rule must be derived. Your grace will never be secure from it unless you continually keep it under suspicion. Follow it only in the fear of God. That idea of everything that you've got, follow it, but only with the fear of God. Otherwise, those things become your own demons.
1: Yes. Yes. Amen. So thank you for listening. Um, Source materials are the Luther's... Commentary on the Magnificat in Luther's Works, Volume 21. We've talked, this has been a favorite volume of ours. Yeah, so we had two episodes on the Sermon on the
0: Mount, then we had the Magnificat, and now we are directing you to look at Sola Publishing's website in 2023 to find the Bible study that Mike Yagley has written as a commentary
1: and a guide for you to read the Magnificat yourself. If you'd like to contact us, catch us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can uh, check us out at graceontap, all one word, dash podcastcom On Facebook, we always post on the Grace on Tap podcast Facebook page whenever
0: there are new episodes. So we encourage you to follow us, like us, share us, uh, write commentaries, reviews, uh, let other people know about the podcast uh, when people are traveling and say, Oh, anybody got a podcast recommendation? Recommend. Grace on Tap. Would
1: appreciate that. Uh, thank you, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.